Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. Really excited about this week. It's episode 534. It's a, a kind of breaking news episode where I talk with Josh Pigford, the founder of Bear Metrics, about his recent sale of Bear Metrics for $4 million to Xenon Ventures. Even though the sale was about two months ago, Josh has not been doing podcasts or blogging, and so this is the first time that I know of that he has you know, come out in public and, and made comments about the exit. And I'm really happy and excited for Josh you know, to see that his seven-year journey of building metrics wound up with that kind of success for him. And I hope you really enjoy our conversation as we dive into the specifics of the purchase price, how much he walked away with, how he is basically getting away with paying almost zero taxes on the proceeds. And we talk about you know, what he bought after the exit, how it's changed his life. And then we, we look back at the last few years because Josh was on the show back in 2015 and several both exciting and, and stressful things had happened to him and Barometrics in the ensuing you know, five years or so. And, and we dig into each one of those. Before we do that, I wanted to encourage you, if you haven't gone to startupsfortherestofus.com and gotten on our email list, there are a couple reasons to do so. One, every week we send an email with expanded show notes. And so it's like almost like a detailed outline that is taken from the episodes by our assistant producer. And so if you go to the website, you'll see a quick summary with links. But if you are on our email list, you get an email every week with a full-blown outline that includes, you know, time codes and and just a really fleshed out version of, of the episode in writing. That means you don't have to go through the transcript. And if you want to refer back to things, you can, can get it there. In addition, if you do sign up to be on our email list, there are two episodes that have never been released on this feed. And there's they're Rob Solo episodes where I talked in one about eight things you must know when launching your SaaS app. And the other one is 10 things you should know as you grow or as you scale your SaaS app. And I've gotten really positive reviews about both of those episodes. They also come with written guides. I, they're like five, six page PDF versions of the episodes in case you want to refer back to them or see it in writing. So I'd encourage you to uh, check it out. Start up for the rest of us.com and your email and with that, let's dive into my conversation with Josh, which in all honesty turned into a really good, steady flowing, funny, entertaining conversation. I really think you're going to enjoy this episode. So let's dive in. Josh Pigford, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Rob. Yeah, your last appearance on Startups for the Rest of Us was in 2015. It was episode 244, where we talked about competition, transparency, and funding. We talked about how you had raised, I believe at that point, I don't know if you'd raised the full 800,000, maybe it was only half a million at that point, but eventually you raised a full 800K in funding. I asked you on that show whether you regretted that at any point, and you said you really didn't, that you didn't regret the raise. At, at some point, you regretted burning through it a little too fast. Does that, does that ring a bell? That's accurate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's usually what happens if you burn through it. You regret. <laughs> so I wish I had not done that. Yeah. <laughs> That's the one thing. And so, so, you know, for folks who don't know, I, I'm trying to imagine who's listening to the show who hasn't heard of Barometrics, but Barometrics, you started it in 2013 and it was the first essentially one click subscription metrics for SaaS apps that, that worked on Stripe. So you just one-click OAuth into your Stripe account and it gave you this gorgeous dashboard of your MRR, your LTV, your churn, all this stuff. And there are, there are certainly other apps that, that are out there doing it today, but it was quite a success story in the early days. And you and I actually talked about, you know, your pretty meteoric growth 
over the first couple years. Again, you started in 2013 and we talked in 2015. Since then, a ton has gone on. And I mean, one of the reasons I'm having you back here today, I'm realizing you should have probably, I should have had you back on a couple years ago because you've done so many, so many interesting things have happened to you and you've done so many interesting things with bare metrics that I think there's a lot of stories to tell here. But realistically, two and a half, three months ago, you wrote a blog post called I Sold Bare Metrics. And that was in November of 2020. And in true Josh Pigford transparency, you walked through that there was no earnout, that the sale price was $4 million, that you personally walked away with $3.7 million in cash. And I believe you didn't pay capital gains tax on that due to uh, the qualified small business stock. Is that right? That's correct. Which is incredible. For people who don't know what it's called, QSBS. I mean, that is mind blowing because normally you would pay you'd pay twenty percent federal, I believe, and or at least eighteen percent federal, and then if you have any state tax, you would you know you would pay on that. So you're saving yourself between twenty and thirty percent of that number. What is QSBS for someone who hasn't heard of it? Yeah. So what um, this is basically only really applicable in the U.S. But what the U.S. government was trying to do was encourage people to hold on to stock for longer periods of time, stock in a business. So they set up QSBS to say after five years of holding on to stock, um, you can cash out and not pay any taxes on it. Federal, state, et cetera, that requires the states to recognize it, which in classic Alabama fashion, Alabama does not recognize it. So (laughs) 5%, I actually end up paying 5% tax on mine, which is still better than capital gains. Thanks, Alabama. That's right. But otherwise, you pay no no taxes on it. Uh, you know, it's just the, that's cash in your bank. And so which is incredible. It is and it's and and I think like that's one of these scenarios where when I formed Bear Metrics like as a C Corp, that was not anything I had even remotely thought about. Like did not even know it existed. I set it up as a C Corp because we were raising money at the time, and it was like, okay, well, to do the whole shares thing, like C Corp's the the natural entity for that. So, otherwise, like then that would not exist for us, right? If you'd done an LLC, yeah, there's no QSBS, right? Then different story. And so, honestly, I stumbled upon that like purely just luck. And you held it for longer that you have to hold it longer than five years. And the fact that you, you know, some startups sell before five years. And so the fact that you did hold it for, you know, in essence, about seven years also opened you up to that. And that made it possible. I mean, I just, I think at a certain point, some of these, these tax benefits make it such that a sale is maybe feasible or not. Like, I think the question I have is like, would you have sold if you had to pay 30% tax on that number? Because that's a lot, that's a lot smaller number. Totally. No, I would not. Like, I remember in 2019, I think, like early, this is probably April 2019, had an offer for, I think it was around $5 million, but it was an asset sale instead of a stock sale. And that would have just, I mean, like cut almost, after all was said and done, nearly 50% of the purchase price would have gone away. And it's just like, that's, no, I would not have done it then, right? Like, it's not worth it. So, yeah, it definitely makes or breaks deals. And that's the thing is, is some people, you know, I've heard people say, how do you calculate your number? Probably the number that you need to potentially, you know, live forever on, so to speak, to retire on. And knowing that people like you and I are never going to not do interesting things, not make things, probably going to make money doing them as we'll get into later with your, uh, your woodworking, your laser tweets. But just to have that safety of being like, huh, yeah, I don't have to work again. There's this, this rule called the 4% rule that 
economists studied and I think it was in the 80s and it's been updated since then. But they say, you know, if you have enough cash in the bank that you can live on 4% of that, then you can live for a 30-year retirement. And, and he ran a bunch of scenarios, and most of them worked, and some of them don't. If you sell right now, you put most of it in stocks, and then there's a huge dip right away, it actually doesn't work. So there's a timing, timing of events. Me, I think of it, I want to be a little more conservative than that, because I think these days, especially right now, like with stocks at, at historic highs, I don't know that the 4% rule is as safe as it used to be. I don't think it is personally, but certainly if you start notching down to a 3.5% rule, a 3% rule, you know, you think about, oh, if I had $4 million in the bank, 3% of that is 120K a year that you can draw. And in essence, that's your money. You don't pay income tax on that, right? It's already in your bank account in essence. So it's not 120K salary. It's more like 100 and whatever, 170K salary to pull 120K out. So the idea there is 3% rule. If you had 4 million in the bank, you could potentially live for 30 plus years. Because in many of the scenarios, people actually had more money left at the end of the 30 years because of just the way the stock market, you know, has performed historically. So all that said, a lot of people think, oh, I need 10 million, you know, to retire or 20 million to retire. And it's like, yeah, you probably don't, assuming you're decent with money, you invest well, you know, you're, you're not crazy with going out and buying, buying a Lambo once you get the check. And that leads me to, to my next question, which is, did you buy anything in the past two or three months that, you know, maybe you'd been waiting most of your life to do? You know, did you make any crazy purchases? The first thing we did was we paid off our house. And like, to your point about the 4% rule, like, that was a big part of our mortgage was like a couple thousand dollars a month. And it's like, okay, that instantly goes away. And all of a sudden your needs from a cash perspective drop pretty drastically. So it's like at that point we have no debt. So it's like, okay, well, we certainly can live off of the, the interest of $3.7 million. So but past that, paid off the house and then uh, bought a Tesla. That was it though. And I went back and forth on the whole Tesla thing. And it was like, we ended up getting like uh, a Model X, which is like the most expensive Tesla, which like I'm super happy with, but also like I'm not a big spender. Like, you know, I don't, I don't care to buy really expensive things. So that, I went back and forth on that one for quite a while, but bit the bullet and I'm happy with it. Everybody loves it. So yeah, that's what I spent. Yeah, that's what I found with some larger purchases. I also have never... I think we both came from humble beginnings, I'll say. My dad was an electrician, mom didn't work, you know, and we always had food, but definitely did not have money for any types of uh, fancy stuff. And so I've always been pretty, pretty tight with money. And as I started having some entrepreneurial success, you know, we we bought a bigger house. And like you said, we had a house payment, you know, that was $2,500. And I remember being like, oh my gosh, that, feel, that feels a lot. And now, of course, it's like, well, that, you know, that's that's not terrible. Um, not that big of a deal. And then, yeah, after after selling drip, eventually upgrading. My cars were always used beaters that I drove for 10, 15 years. My, you know, my, I had a salvage title Buick rendezvous that I bought for eight grand in cash, you know, in Fresno, from a gas station in Fresno, California. And I drove that for 10 years while we were building drip. And, and it had the, the side mirror was taped on with duct tape and say, and it just never bothered me. Right. It was, it was a decent car. And then after we moved to Minneapolis, it's like, man, I kind of want an all wheel drive car with remote start and heated seat, you know, and I had never had any of that stuff. So yeah, I bought a Volvo, which is when you hear it, it's like, Oh, isn't that like your grandpa's car? But no, they're actually crazy luxury and they're really nice cars. And I, and I just, it was a big step. Frankly, Cherry pushed me to do it and encouraged me to do it. And 
it was a good move. So I, I hear you on that. You know, I, of course, bought it used because I just couldn't stand it. <laughs> but <laughs> Well, that's like, we were the same way. It was like, I kept looking at like, should I get a used Model X or something like that? And then I was just like, no, this is like, we have nothing else that we're just like, let's spend tons of money on. So it's like, let's just buy it and be done with it. And I mean, is there any other way you can think of that, like selling barometrics and, and kind of having these last few months to do really, truly what you want with it? Like, is it a dramatic shift? Like, do you feel like your life has changed pretty dramatically? I feel like it has changed dramatically from a mental perspective. So from a day in and day out, what am I doing? Like, I still come up to my home office and do stuff. It's not bare metrics, but it's, you know, I'm still doing things that probably most people would classify as like work. But what I, what I don't find myself doing is going home or, or, you know, like leaving my office and I'm still mentally chewing on whatever it is I'm working on. Whereas with Barometrics to say, you know, I would go to sleep like worrying about something maybe an employee had said or like maybe like there's an employee that seems like they're unhappy and so maybe they're, I've had this like gut feeling that they're going to leave soon. And, you know, these things that just sort of occupy your brain space, that stuff pretty much went away overnight. And so I feel probably mentally freer than I had in the previous like seven years. Yeah, definitely know that feeling. It chews up a lot of mental cycles running a business. Well, and after, after you do it for years, you don't even realize how it just becomes baseline for you. So yeah, that's probably the biggest shift for me has just been not chewing on stuff for, for days and days. Mm -hmm. And you, you have taken some time off social media, right? Or you had planned to. Yeah, I took a little bit of time off. and I've, But I think pandemic stuff has made it, actually it's, it's been... Social media can become, for me, some sort of like social lifeline when it's harder to like see people in person as much. So, yeah, it makes it tough. I'm curious. I mean, I'm going to ask you as someone who has gone through a similar experience of, of selling a company, leaving, and having the new owner perhaps make decisions, some decisions that I wouldn't have made. With me, it was a, a drip price increase with, you know, no grandfathering that happened very quickly. And, and again, I was not involved anymore. And I sat and kind of watched the, the debacle unfold. Over the past couple of months, I think that the new owner of Barometrics has made decisions that, that you probably wouldn't have made. I believe there's cancellations, you have to call in, you know, there's just, there's stuff, they're changing flows. How has that impacted you emotionally or, or in any other way? I don't know that it has impacted me emotionally at all, other than it's one of these things where, okay, if I have to have an opinion on this, my opinion is I would not have done that. We did not do that while I was running the company. I still would not do it. But that's, but I also know that there are different ways of doing things. And so it doesn't bother me. I think like almost what bothers me more is in that particular case where the whole like call to cancel thing, while I wasn't, or, you know, am not involved with bare metrics, like, they still like were keeping me like they like informed me of like, well, here's actually what went down. And it's like, so I knew what I was seeing on social media was not like everybody was piling on. And the reality was there's a lot more to that story than what probably seemed like on, on social media where everybody was just sort of piling on. So which is always the case, really, like when somebody posts some angry thing on on Twitter, the reality is they're probably not they're not including everything. And so. That was one of those cases where it's like, man, I, everybody's piling on the bare metrics. I, I disagree with the call to cancel thing, but at the same time, there's, there's more to the story here. And, but at the same, like bare metrics, people just had to sort of like bite their tongue and let it pass. 
Yeah, and you didn't. I didn't see you getting involved, did you? Where you're just kind of like, eh, I'm not going to. I didn't at yeah. all because I, I think the only way that I got or said anything about it was like I, I tweeted something about how I was going to write up some rant. And then I just decided to like I don't, that I don't care, <laughs> like because that's the reality. Was like I I have an opinion here, but like it doesn't matter. Yeah, that's that's it. There's there's a certain level of I, I hear founders say, you know, I'm gonna I'm starting a new company and I'm gonna hire a CEO to run my old company, or I'm gonna run two companies at once. Why would I sell? It's growing. It's doing well. And that's one of those instances where I'm not saying you should sell or whatever, but there are moments where you are happy that you really are separate from the business, you know, that you're not still an owner that a CEO is running. There really is a clean cut um, between you and, and the company. I think that until you've had the clean cut, I don't think you realize, you know, and I, I'd explored that too, was let, let me you know, hire a CEO and I'll just sit back. But then the whole, the whole brain space thing, like the whole mental break that I was talking about a few minutes ago, you don't get the break from that, right? It's still there because if whoever's running it runs it into the ground, well, like that, that affects you. Yeah, and you're, you're under-diversified, right? You have literally millions of dollars in cash in this private company that you, you, know, you can't get out, and that's, that's tough. There's a lot of risk there. A little bit jokey, but truly, like, did you buy any crypto with uh, your mad stacks of cash? <laughs> so what we did with the money is... We got a, a financial planner. Planner is probably the wrong word. I mean, like they man, he, the, this financial planning advisor. Yeah, like they're managing our money for us, and so he's got it. Like we basically just put it all with them, and those, so they're handling like buying the appropriate stocks and bonds, and like moving things over at the correct times and all that stuff. Like it's one of those things where I didn't want, in the same way that I pay a CPA to handle my taxes because I hate taxes and don't want to try to become an expert on it. It's the same with the like financial stuff where I can't possibly like really wrap my head around it so that I don't screw it up. So I'm gonna let somebody else do it. And, and that's like personal finance and investing has been like a hobby of mine, a sick, twisted hobby, much like entrepreneurship for years. So I still manage my own money, but I do think there's, you know, there's a case to be made for getting outside help, getting experts, as long as you find someone you can trust, you feel like you're being fairly, they're being fairly compensated, but you're not, there's no hidden fees because that's something that happens in that space, right? Yeah. And I think that that's crucial where, it's like I, I remember the first sort of financial advisor that we talked to, I really got like sleazy feeling about him. And so it's like, man, this is, I would not feel comfortable here. And then we're like, we found someone who I didn't get that vibe with. And, and I think like that's crucial is like finding somebody that you, you feel okay with, you know? I want to roll the story back to late 2016. It's a, at a point where you almost ran out of money. Barometrics almost ran out of money. You blogged about this later in March of 2017, how we went from weeks of cash left in the bank to profitable in eight months. And of course, we'll link... I mean, the beauty, Joshua was telling you offline before we started is, it's so easy to, to interview you because all you have to do is go back and look at your blog posts and you just tell this extremely open story of what's going on. And so I can almost just step from crisis. You are, you are the blog about things that are really hard or really amazing wins. And those are the things that are interesting to talk about on a podcast. So almost running out of money and then selling, trying to sell the company and then selling it. You know, these are all basically bronzed for us, you know, in these blog posts that, that, that will live on. So talk to me about this decision in late 2016. By that time you had, you had raised your funding and I believe you were, you were through it, you know, you had, you'd burned it and you're running out of money. What was your thought process there? What was the, the story and really 
that had to have been quite stressful. I think is the first, like how painful was that for you to sit here and think I built this amazing company three years in where the envy of a lot of SaaS founders, cause you'd have been telling your story publicly and wow, you know, I might miss payroll next week. So we had in 2015, we were on this, I would say we were on this sort of traditional VC trajectory of, okay, like we need to get to a million MRR, like that's the next sort of goal. And we had raised 500,000 and then I had, you know, really, I was coming to the end of that. I was like, okay, well, we got to raise some more money. So raised 300,000 more. That was end of 2015. And then as 2016 progressed, we did not have the growth. I mean, this is just classic startup story of like, you keep raising money and then you're not hitting like the growth that you thought you would and you just start burning through all your cash. By 2015, you know, mid to late 2016, we had had in fact started running out of cash and the financial details of things tend to kind of bore me. I'm like the big picture, like let's just build product and see what happens. Like that's fun to me is like the building things, but like the, the managing things in spreadsheets is not fun to me. And so that had gotten out of hand for me. It's like I had, I had not paid attention to sort of burn rate stuff like I should have. And so all of a sudden I realized like, okay, we've just got like a few weeks of cash left. We, we've got to make some big changes here. And I had already gone through the, the sort of second round of like where we raised 300,000 more. And I was like, man, I, I can't do another like, let me go ask for more money from people. So it was either ask for more money from people or like let's, let's see if there's a scenario where we can get profitable and not lay people off. And the way that we did that was... Um, I think everybody on the team took a, I think it was a 15% pay cut. I took a 30% pay cut. From a Silicon Valley perspective, our salaries were not astronomical or anything to begin with. And so by the end of the year, by the end of 2016, we were able to change the graph so that we did not run out of money. Yeah, that's tough. Did you lose anybody? No, we had two people left, I would say disconnected from that whole situation. So it wasn't like we had to lay people off or people were like, okay, I'm not making enough. I need to leave. There were people who from 2015 with those pay cuts still like they were, they're still at the company today. So ultimately, like I'm pretty proud of how we handled that, but I guess more probably like grateful for the people who were willing to stick around. Yeah, I bet. And how was that? It was obviously it wasn't fun. Did it take a a noticeable toll on you? Like, is that one of the the weeks where you maybe uh, didn't, didn't sleep well? drink a few too many bourbons, you know, whatever. How do you cope with that stuff? Yeah, I think certainly affected sleep a lot. I think for me, the stressors with Barometrics were almost always around the people. And so a wonderful team, but like I always wanted to not do anything that would put the team in in some sort of hard position. And so the fact that we were putting people in a hard position by asking them to take a pay cut, like that I just made me sick to my stomach. You know, it was, it was one of those things where with entrepreneurship, I signed up for the roller coaster, right? Like I, I'm aware of the ups and downs. Barometrics is not the first thing that I've ever started. And so it's, you know, me, my family, like we're used to some instability when it comes to the financial side of things and comfortable with it ultimately. But no one I hired signed up for that. And it's tough to ask people to do that. So certainly some sleepless nights around them. 
Yeah, I can imagine that. I mean, another interesting point, uh, I think probably another down point is Bear Metrics had a few plateaus over the years. And I think a lot of folks listening to this building SaaS apps have experienced that where you're growing, everything's going great. And suddenly it's like, why am I, why are we stuck at 30,000 MRR for six months, you know? And, and I think there was a big one I was looking, I mean, people can go to demo.bearmetrics.com and they can see your MRR since inception. So that's all I did when preparing for this, but it looks like from late 2017 until early 2019, you were effectively, you're growing a lot faster before then. And then it, you were between 90 and hundred K for like, I don't know, 17 months or 16 months or something. And what happened there and how did you, and then you broke through it because I believe right now you're what at 150, yeah, I say you, Bear Metrics is at a, you know, 150K MRR. So obviously that, that remedied itself. But I, I guess first question is, you know, what caused that? And then second is how did you figure out how to break through it? So I think around that time, so there's a, a number of things. One, I think there was some technical stuff. So where we were in, we were having to spend a lot of time rewriting things because when you build something to begin with, there's all these things where you you know you could build this thing to to scale up to hundreds of thousands of customers or millions of whatevers and like, but then you would never launch the thing because you've spent all this time like pre-optimizing things. So this is you know, as is the case with most software, you get to a point where you've reached the, the the technical limits of what you originally built, and we delayed that sort of rewrite as long as possible. And but that that sort of 2017 ish time frame was when we were, we were hitting the limits here. And so we ended up spending a ton of time rebuilding the internals. And so externally, though, customers see nothing from an improvement perspective. And so I think that was a lot of the plateaus it was like, okay, there's things that people are asking for and wanting, but like we don't have the bandwidth to do those things right now because we're in the middle of this rewrite. So that, that was a lot of it. Then at the same time, this is about when Stripe starts rolling out their own analytics thing. We've got chart moguls, uh, probably the most from a competition perspective. They're pretty strong, and they, you know, have handled the, the the infrastructure stuff a lot better than we were able to at the time. There are just all these things that sort of converged and made it really difficult for us to grow. Ultimately, like we just we we're, we're only had like six seven people and. A lot of that's just engineering, focused on engineering stuff and no marketing team or anything like that. And so, you know, it was just like a lot of different things that all piled up. I mean, that, that had to have been tough, right? For, you know, whatever, 15 to 17 months to be plateaued like that. How did you, how did you break through it eventually? Well, we made the infrastructure changes that ultimately allowed us to do more real-time stuff where previously, like, your metrics would be delayed by 24 hours, but those infrastructure changes sort of set the groundwork for us to have a more powerful tool. So you can do more real-time metrics. You can, you know, create all these different segments of based on all these different attributes. And like from a analytical tooling perspective, bare metrics became a lot more powerful. And so that was that was a huge one. Was just this is, as a tool like lets people do a lot more than they could previously. Then we started doing these add-ons. So you've got like recover. Cancellation insights, like there's all these, there's just different add-ons that like make bare metrics as a tool more powerful. And I do believe that product is ultimately what got us through the the whole plateau thing. And you know, we hired a growth person for a while, and like that didn't really work out, and didn't really have any progress there. So for us, I think still, at least the the entire time I was there, product and to some extent the content stuff drove growth for us. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask was. 
product got you out of it, do you think marketing could have gotten you out of it sooner? Because that would be, you know, I, you and I are product people. And so I see features, every, every nail is a hammer when, no, wait a minute, what is it? <laughs> you know, this, the expression of like, hey, when you're a product person, it's building features is the way to get out of plateaus. But I often think that more marketing, I think, could be helpful in those situations. But I'm curious about your take on that. Yeah, so, I mean, I wanted marketing to be this sort of magic pill for us, especially in the early days, it was product and it was me writing blog posts every single week. And that worked really well in the early days. But eventually, like me writing a blog post every week, like I just couldn't keep up with it. So then hiring a marketing person, my hope had been like, okay, we can have somebody who can really focus on just marketing this thing and like doing the things that like I don't have the skill set for. For whatever reason, that, that ended up not really being the case for us on the marketing hire side of things. So you know, I don't know exactly what Xenon, the, the the acquirer of Bear Metrics, is doing on the marketing front now. But like the entire time I was there, we never found this marketing sort of channel or set of channels that worked really well for us. And I think a lot of that's just was my lack of skill, or maybe it was budget of, or a willingness to spend money. I don't know. I never really found it. I- interest too, probably. Interest for sure. I mean, you like know, you're not that interested. Yeah. Yeah, and I, so we hired a content marketing person. He was fantastic. And if anything, you know, I hired him in January uh, of 2020. So, you know, he had about eight or nine months where we worked together before our, I sold the company. And so I think in that time, like, yeah, like he, he got that machine going again where it had died off the previous couple of years with me trying to manage it. And so I still think like content was, and maybe still is the, the strongest sort of acquisition channel for Bear Metrics. It was hard to do anything outside of that. Yeah, and it's interesting to hear you say, you know, we never really found a channel outside of content, and yet you, you know, you grew a business to almost two million in annual recurring revenue. So there, there are many ways to do this. You know, one could argue, well, with if we had found the channel, it, you know, it would over seven years, it would be a larger business, but it's also still possible. I think of like our friend Nathan Barry, like where with ConvertKit, where he was just like doing nothing for years almost, right? Like he, and he would say the same thing, right? Where he's just like at a few thousand dollars a month and then like does almost nothing on the product side, but like repositions himself in the product. And like, it just starts growing like gangbusters. And like, oh, I kept wanting something. Like I kept thinking with bare metrics, like, are we just focused on the wrong people? Is our target market wrong? And we just never could find like whatever switch to make that happen. Yeah. And in December of 2019, then you wrote a blog post called I Almost Sold Bear Metrics for $5 million. And leading up to that, I'm guessing, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, you're, you're basically almost six years into this business. It's growing, but maybe not as fast as, as one would like. Do you feel like you were experiencing burnout? Were you kind of tired of of the grind, or I, I guess the real question is, you know, what motivated you to start thinking about about selling it? Yeah, a lot of that was life timing. So I had not been thinking about selling. I certainly had not been pursuing anything, and then got an email with a decent offer, like relatively straightforward. Didn't there was no complicated stuff attached to it or anything. And so I was like, well, maybe maybe this would make sense. You know, at the time, like family stuff was rough and like there was just a lot going on that it's like man I would love to not have the sort of mental burden of running a company so that started the 
the, the train down the tracks, you know, ultimately didn't work out. You know, in the interest of time, folks can read that blog post if they want to hear more about how it didn't work out. And, and that was a bummer. I have to imagine, you know, obviously later you sold it and basically got more money because you don't have to pay taxes due to QSPS because it was a stock sale versus asset. But after that sale fell through, what was your headspace? Like how devastated did that feel? And how did you pick yourself up after that? So after, from the time that I got that original offer, that was April, I think by, I might have a few months off here, but like, it was like August, September or something like that when it was like, okay, this is not going to work. And at that point, like I was, I was so burnt out on the process that I had sort of accepted this isn't going to work out, right, at least this time around. I can't pour more into this. I just need to get back to work. And so after I made that decision, I really did not spend much time sort of wallowing. I was just like, okay, well, this is what we got. Let me get back to work. I mean, you know, a couple months later, hired three people. Like, it was just, let's go all in and like make this happen. So I did not, I was not as bummed as I, one would probably think, but that was probably more so because my, my nerves were just shot from the, the whole process of, and, and all that falling through. I have a lot of respect for that because I don't know that I could have recovered that quickly. My personality is I would have hung, <laughs> hung on to things for months and probably wallowed in the, in the sadness. But it sounds like that really wasn't the case for you. I, other than like being just bitterly angry at the people who ultimately ghosted us, screw those guys. But like, other than that, I was ready to get back to it. Yeah. And then in 2020, you launched a new feature. I mean, you said you hired people, you launched a new feature, this feature called intros, where I believe you had conversations with investors. It was going to match up like in potential investors or acquirers with Barometrics customers who had opted in to this thing of, hey, I am looking for funding, you know, or I am look open to acquisition offers. And of course, here's all our metrics. So it's, you know, kind of a natural fit, right? And you had conversations, people said, hey, this is a great thing. So you, you built it and it didn't work. What happened there? Of all the things that we have built with Barometrics, I felt so confident in like, our research phase of this, of this idea, I mean, I had talked to, had dozens and dozens of calls with ultimate investors because they would be the customer here. We did mock-up, like interactive mock-ups before we wrote any code. We just done all sorts of things to try to prove the idea before we spent the time to build it. And I felt so great about it. And, and I also had, you know, this like classic entrepreneur, like pie in the sky. This is the thing that's going to like blow it up for us because... You know, we're talking about million dollar deals here. We'll, we'll be able to make tens of thousands of in, in new MRR like day one. That's the kind of feeling that it had. And we had so many investors who had like signed up to be, to like be notified when it launched, even outside of all the people I had talked to. And, and then we like launched it and, and nobody, I, I mean, I didn't get a single paying customer from it. Like it was such a downer for like me and the team as a whole that like, where did we go wrong here? That was probably one of the biggest sort of morale destroyers in the history of Barometrics was like, we had spent months building this thing. It felt like we were onto something and we just weren't. We, like, we got it wrong. Yeah, it's tough. You know, so to me, when I, when I think about intros, obviously you were going to charge the investor side for deal flow in essence. And when I think about it not working, I think, well, 
yeah, that makes sense because most investors don't actually need that much deal flow because people come to, they're giving away money. <laughs> people <laughs> giving it away in exchange for equity. But, you know, still, it's like if you have money and you're going to invest, deal flow isn't as hard as, as I think people would make out. So if you were just to pitch me the idea, I'd be like, yeah, you know, I'm not sure this is going to work. But the fact that you then did the mock-ups, had the conversations, did the validation, and that all pointed towards it working, that's the surprising part to me is I just would have thought that there would be signals earlier in the process. In, in all my conversations, like probably where we didn't spend enough time harping on this with the investors was the cost of it or how much they would be willing to pay or like, you know, there occasionally somebody would recommend, well, how about you take a percentage of the deal that goes through or whatever, you know, and like we were trying to not complicate it or like have contracts signed where we're now some sort of like partial owner and whatever the deal is. Like there are lots of different ways you could charge for something like that. And we were trying to just say like, okay, look, if we can get you one new deal a month that you otherwise would not have gotten, this has got to be worth at least 500 bucks a month or something like that, you know, and couldn't make it happen. And I think again, that part of that also went down to my aversion to salesy marketing stuff. It's like, okay, well, if we had had someone like a proper sales person handling all that stuff, well, maybe we could have closed some of those deals or something like that. But I just, after we launched it and could not get people to convert, it was just, okay, I don't know what else to do here because this is so far out. This is so far out of my wheelhouse. Right. And at 500 a month, it's more of an enterprise sales process and you didn't really want to do enterprise sales, right? And I didn't. I like, it just kills me. So I, I, it's not that I don't think the product could have worked. And I've seen a bunch of stuff, other things crop up in the past you know, year or two since then from people building similar things, like trying to have deal flow and hook it up to your Stripe account and all this stuff. And so people are still trying it. I was the wrong guy for it. Yeah, that's the thing I think folks should realize is like validation can work. I, I will say it, it does work, not all the time. Oftentimes we validate incorrectly, you know, or we make we make mistakes with it. Sometimes it does give us false signals. It's not a hundred validation is not a hundred percent. But also when you launch something, a lot of times it's like knowing yourself and knowing, you know, like you said, what you are interested in, what you're willing to do. Sometimes a product needs something different than that. And, and like you said, it can feasibly be successful if it's has different folks running it. Like I I think of tiny seed. And I think of if I were, you know, pitching investors and raising money, tiny seed would not be nearly as successful as it is with my co-founder, Anar Volset, who is kind of designed and made for that. And, you know, it's more of an enterprise sales process, it's relationships and all that stuff. Much like you, it's not my sweet spot. It's in fact, I don't ever want to do it ever. (laughs) And in that case, like tiny seed wouldn't work for me if I started it on my own. And it sounds like intros is a similar thing where it, it wasn't in the right place for you. You did wind up selling it uh, for, for $100,000. So that did that feel like a, a win to you? I mean, it was like a year and a half later or something, right? But like you wound up getting some cash out of it. Yes. And that, I do feel like that, you know, it talks about how from a morale perspective, how that thing failing just was such a bummer for everybody. But selling it for 100000 it sort of flipped that over and everybody was really stoked on it. I mean, one of our goals for that year when we sold it was to ha- just get more cash in the bank because we've had, you know, we got profitable after we almost ran out of money, but like we were still operating pretty much right at break even on purpose. And so having just some more cash in the bank to give a little bit of a, a buffer was our, one of our goals going into the year. And so being able to get that buffer in by selling this thing, the leftovers felt like a win for everybody. So yeah, I was happy with that outcome. 
So to take us forward, you know, again, two, three months ago, you wind up selling Bear Metrics in a truly uh, a life-changing, you know, exit. And I asked you before we hit record, so are you going to do the smart thing and take some time, take six months off? Or are you already, you know, knowing you, are you already working on your next thing? And you told me about laser tweets, which I had seen you tweet about now and again, but I didn't realize, I thought it was like a hobby thing that you were doing, but so folks can go to lasertweets.co and you have a full-on online store here, sir, with um, their coasters that are laser engraved with people's tweets. So like you have a Lil Nas X coaster set and like the first one says Old Town Road is literally about horses. You have uh, this one from Kanye West. Well, you have a whole set of them, but he says, I have no interest in working with anyone who is too important or too good or too traditional to take a call at 3 a.m. So tell me about the, you know, you're a maker, so this makes sense, but like, tell me about how this came about and, and what it's doing. Yeah, it's super dumb, Rob. Like, the, the <laughs> thing, so in 2000, I think it was 18, I got a laser cutter just because, why not? Uh, that sounded fun. And then I was like, maybe I should figure out some way to, I don't know, make something with it. And the, like, let's laser etch tweets into wood and see what happens. 2019, I just, it was still very much a little hobby thing. I think in 2019, I made like $10,000 from it that year. And then, this past year, 2020, it certainly started picking up like in the summer. And then when I sold Bear Metrics, so we closed the deal basically end of October, early November. And that also coincides with the shopping season for the holidays. So it was like the second I sold Bear Metrics, I instantly jumped into like running the laser cutter for 12 hours a day and packing orders all day. Like, cause it was just blew up, man. That's what I just, that's what I've been doing. Like, I haven't taken a break because I've been laser etching Kanye tweets. <laughs> this is the most the most bizarre ending to to a startup exit story that I think I've ever heard. All right. So for months. So and but you made and you made some money? I made twenty yeah, I was looking now at twenty thousand dollars in twenty twenty. So I I have doubled I've doubled my growth. Like, okay, like I'm on this is this is rocket ship growth stuff here, Rob. <laughs> You need to raise funding. I do. I think that you're onto something. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love it, man. So, are you gonna are you gonna continue doing this? It kind of has. It, it sounds like it has legs of its own. I guess I don't know. I um, it was certainly not my plan to jump right into it. So I don't know. Right now, it's I have a hard time with just you know I want to see things through. Where so like with bare metrics, for instance, I felt like my role or like my usefulness at the company, my ability to grow it run its course. Like I was the wrong guy to keep trying to run the company. So I kind of feel this with, with, with laser tweets. It's like, well, let me just, I'm still the right guy for it. Let me just see what happens. Like I mean, we doubled sales in the past year. Like, well, what happens if I double it again this year in 2021? And then at that point, just like, well, let me just first part of this next year, like sell it and be done with it then or something like that. I don't know. You'd ask about like taking some time off. Like I don't feel any desire to start anything new. And this is more like, well, let me just like see this through to the end of this thing that I've already got going. And it doesn't stress me out. So that's nice. It's nice that it's so different. So different yeah. than running so a different. SaaS app. Yeah. Exactly. Like I'm, I'm avoiding software, building any kind of software like the plague. Like I just don't want to touch any software. So this is very much not that. It's handling wood and just like making physical things. Like that's... That's almost therapeutic for me, especially because I don't, with bare metrics, 
it had to work because there were, there were people, families relying on me not running that thing into the ground. Whereas like with laser tweets, like if it stopped tomorrow, if people no longer wanted Kanye tweets, fine. Like who cares? I don't, it doesn't matter. So there's no stress associated with it. That's why I've loved watching you over these past seven, eight years since since we we got to know each other at Microconf and, and on Twitter is you just you're always doing interesting things and and you're framing them in a way that I think is is admirable and both admirable and inspirational to a lot of folks. You know, like you make people around you want to to build things. You make people want to be entrepreneurial or to do kooky things. And and I just I have a lot of respect for for what you built with parametrics and I'm honestly like super happy that this was your outcome. I don't like to use the word deserve because it's just a loaded word, but like, I feel like you, you worked your ass off and you earned, <laughs> you earned some success. So props to you. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate that. And if folks want to keep up with you, you are SH Pigford on Twitter and obviously lasertweets.co if they want to see the amazing, I mean, these dude, you have picked out your, your, your taste in curating. These is amazing. There's the Elon Musk set. There's a Donald Trump couple Donald Trump sets. I noticed Kanye West has the most sets. Well, he's, he's easily the most popular followed by e- Elon, yeah. but, um, people love some Kanye. I just can't, can't stop laughing as I read through these. I love it, man. So, well, yeah, thanks again for joining me, man. And, you know, obviously, if you do get the startup bug, I'm, I'm curious to see over the next, I mean, you're, you're a maker, you're a creator, you've, you've built multiple, you know, SaaS apps. A lot of people don't know that you had, you know, several uh, apps before uh, Metrics, but I, I'm genuinely curious to see if it comes back to you. To, to actually, you're always going to build and launch things. I wonder if you're going to ever want to do software again. I have not had the itch to launch production software since we sold Drip. I still build things. I still have hacky, hacky ass PHP scripts that I, you know, connect to this and that API or whatever. You know, I mean, I, I do things and I, and I love code. I've been writing code since I was eight, but to launch something into production for other people to use, I have not had that desire. And I'm of course scratching that itch with this podcast and microconf and tiny seed, right? I'm building interesting things, things that are interesting to me through that. So I'm curious to see how, you know, aside from laser tweets, how you figure out how to to scratch that itch for yourself. I'm I'm curious as well. I think that the reality is like I've been building software, like trying to make money off of software for the better part of almost 15 years. And it's not like, oh, I, you know, I stuck with bare metrics for seven years and like I'm moving on to something else. Like I've, I've had a career essentially in like the SaaS world for like 15 years. Like, okay. I feel like I've done that and now I'm ready to move on to, to, to try other things because I just get, I get bored. I'm also, I'm curious what the next few years look like. Yeah. So congrats again to you, sir. And uh, thanks for joining me today. Hey, thanks, Rob. Thanks again to Josh for coming on the show. Thanks so much for joining me again this week and I'll be in your earbuds again next Tuesday morning.